I'm old enough to remember 9-11. I'm assuming most of you are. I am a little curious. How many of you do not remember 9-11? Okay, there are a few. It's just amazing to me. It seemed like just a few days ago. And it is a reminder that there is so much conflict and disunity in this world. But today, I think of an even bigger concern is when there's conflict or disunity within God's church and God's people. And we would expect conflict in the world, and as awful as 9-11 was, it's worse when you see it in the church. Now, in my years of the church, I have seen elders and staff in conflict. I've seen congregational meetings filled with tension and arguing. I saw an elder and deacon stand up and yell at each other in a meeting. Uh, I have not seen this, but I've heard of actual hitting in board meetings. And what's sad, very often a lot of this conflict is over trivial things. I, I know of a church that had a big debate, and they were just starting to get all hot and bothered about which kind of tires to get for the church van. I mean, it's amazing. I heard of a complaint about a preacher who left his garage door open too often, and some lady got really upset over this, and she said it was the same as if he were walking around with his fly open. I'm not sure what's going on to mine there, you know. But anyway, we're doing this series out of 1 Corinthians. I love you, but you have problems. And Paul writes to this church that he is birthed, he loves them, but they've got problems, and one of them is disunity. Now, within Christianity today, there's something like 30,000-plus denominations or factions, and we have division between churches and also division within churches. Back during the Protestant Reformation, it got pretty nasty between Protestants and Catholics. In one instance, some Protestants threw some Catholics out of a third-story window. And the Catholics survived, and there was three of them. And the story going around in Catholic circles was that an angel came and caught them, and so they were saved, and that's why they didn't die. The story going around in Protestant circles is that the Catholics survived because they landed in a big pile of manure. So, so anyway... Thankfully, interdenominational strife is not as prevalent as it once was, but there's still disunity, and especially within some local churches. According to national studies, church leaders now devote 25 to 40 percent of their time to congregational tension. And I'll just tell you, it's not fun, and being a leader when there's a lot of tension and conflict. And so disunity... Is something that happens today, it happened back in the Reformation, and it happened in the first century, very back, very much right back to the beginning. 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So that's the goal, and that's what it should be like, unity in Christ, no division in mind and thought. Verse 11, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say you were baptized in my name. And then he has a brain <laughs> pause. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This unity is nothing new. What causes it? It seems that in Christ, this unity would be non-existent or at least minimized. So why does it happen 
of all places, in churches and between churches. Let me say this. This is, Mount Pulaski Christian Church, is the first church I have been at in 40 years. I have never gone to an elders meeting or come out of an elders meeting with a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. I've never, I just have confidence in these guys. There's unity in the leadership. I heard of one minister who used to preach at a pretty difficult church, and he said he had diarrhea the whole time he was there. That's too much information. I get it, you know. But he had so much stress. And when you have unity in a church, it is a blessing. And we are blessed. But unity is fragile. And we dare not take it for granted. When we had an elder or staff, we require them to read a book on unity. I mean, we need to be keep praying for unity. Don't take it for granted. Jesus prayed for it, so we should pray for it too. So, I want to go back. Why, should there, why is there unity and disconflict in the church? Let me give some reasons it happens. Verse 12, Paul mentions one. He says, one of you says, I follow Paul, another Apollos, another I follow Cephas, another I follow Christ. Disunity occurs when we become personality-centered, when a per- powerful person has too much power. The Corinthian conflict involved various teachers, and these became rallying points. You know, Paul was the founder. Apollos was a great preacher. Cephas, or Peter, was recognized as the leader of the church at large. And so they were kind of groupies, you know, following people. And many of you have had a certain preacher or a certain church leader that you feel special toward. Maybe it's the one that converted you or the one that had, was at, at a very important part of your life. And they'll always have a special place in your life. Some of you love JT. You always will because he had an influence in your life. Some of you love John. Uh, Robertson, some of you love Marvin Flowers, and you'll never love anyone like you love him. Some of you may even go back farther. And every minister knows one of the hardest places to go and preach is where the previous preacher was really well-liked and there a long time because of a danger of a personality cult developing. And when that personality leaves, sometimes it leads to disruption and conflict. Now, in verse 12, where Paul says, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, The emphasis in the grammar is not on Paul and Apollos and Cephas. The emphasis in the grammar is on I. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. (laughs) Well, I follow Christ. And there's the problem. It's not just about following a certain faction. It's more about pride. And that's really the bigger reason for disunity. It occurs when we become pride-driven. I follow and -and so-and-so, therefore I am better than you. And they boasted in the great names they follow, but in doing, we're actually boasting in themselves. The biggest cause of conflict, you know what it is? The biggest cause of conflict in the church or in the home or in a marriage is usually ego, pride. I grew up in the Christian church, uh, and there was kind of a spiritual elitism in the Christian church. Very subtle, but very real. I was taught, we don't follow Luther, we don't follow Calvin, we don't follow Wesley, we follow Jesus Christ. Kind of like some in Corinth were saying. And I still think it's a pretty good idea to follow Jesus. But you hear this spiritual elitism. We don't follow men like the Lutherans and the Methodists do, we follow Jesus. You know, just like the Corinthians were saying. And, And it's a pride and ego issue, and it's a big issue. I think the number one cause of division is ego. You know what ego stands for? E-G-O, edging God out. Another reason, closely related, it's disunity occurs when we become power hungry. I heard a saying years ago I have found to be pretty much true. The issue is never the issue. 
The issue is always control. Can I get my way? The Corinthian quarreling was not just that they were for Apollos or Cephas or whatever. It's more that they were against Paul. There was a faction there because they did not want to submit to his authority. They wanted to be in control. And whenever you see disunity or conflict, the issue is usually not the issue. It's really about power. Someone's not getting their way. That's why churches will argue over what kind of tires to put on the bus. The tires are not the issue. Who's calling the shots? So Paul appeals and he urges them and uses strong words here. Be united. Agree. Don't have divisions. Take unity seriously. In John 17, Jesus prays. It's his longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And he prays for the unity of the church that we may be one as he and the Father are one. So why does Paul urge us? Why does Jesus pray about unity? Why is it so important? Well, first of all, the essence of the church is one. His church is not multiple. Jesus asks, is Christ divided? When you divide the body of Christ, you're dividing Christ himself. So the church as a body is by definition of one. Mark Weber has one body. He doesn't have four bodies or 30,000 bodies. I mean, whoever heard of one head and multiple bodies? Was Paul crucified for you? Did Apollos or Peter die for you? No. We're all in one Lord. And their divisions are absurd. You've been baptized into Christ, and Christ is not divided. Also, more practically speaking, without unity, evangelism is really, really, really hard. Paul says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The number one reason people give for avoiding a church is too many hypocrites. The number two reason people give for avoiding church is Christians are always fighting with each other. Now, the first one is a whole lot easier to answer than the second one. Of course there are hypocrites in the church. Of course there's people who don't live up to the faith. Every one of us is hypocritical to some extent. So let, you can answer that one. But how do you explain Christians fighting in the name of Christ? You know, I mean, how do you explain unloving, selfish behavior by people who worship God of a selfless love? How do you explain two Christians who cannot live in harmony with each other? How does that happen? You know, you Christians, you talk about reconciliation, you talk about forgiveness, you talk about grace and unity. Where is it? See, they will know we are Christians by how we love one another. And without unity, they won't know. Our witness is tarnished. And besides, who would want to invite anyone to a fighting church? Yeah, come to our church. We'll fight. We'll fight. With you. you know, it doesn't work. And then the third thing goes right along with without unity, Satan is empowered. A young man in ministry called me once. This has been a few years ago now. And he was at his first church. He was in his mid-20s. He's kind of like Garrett or Parker. And uh, he was a good guy, an intelligent, likable, hard worker, conscientious, like Garrett and Parker. And there were five people, four or five people, who were complaining that he wasn't giving them enough attention. Now, these were five so-called mature Christians who'd been in the church a long time. And it seems to me, if you've been in the church for a while, you'd be a little more mature and a little more giving and understanding. But it seems that sometimes the opposite happens. And in the church, oh, I've been in here a long time. I feel entitled. You know, my parents were here, my grandparents. And I put in my time and I have my rights. And you hear the EGO. I'm edging God out. So this youth minister, I said, well, I said, have you talked to the elders? He said, I did. One elder, all he's concerned about is money. And the other elder, all he's concerned about, don't rock the boat. Placate everyone. He was ready to leave the ministry. And Satan was on the verge of winning a great victory. 
And what's sad is some churches not only accept that kind of behavior, but they expect that kind of behavior. Well, it's just the way it is. Every church has people who will stir things up if you let them. They will, there's people who like conflict. I had one man in one church, the only time he showed up is if there's any hint of trouble. He wanted to be in the middle of it. And when we're divided and quarreling among ourselves, we become Satan's tools. So what is the solution? What is the way to unity? And is there any hope for Christianity at large between different churches and denominations? The rest of this sermon is going to talk about those two things. First, talking about unity between churches and then achieving unity within the church. Between churches, we will probably never agree doctrinally on every point. And when Paul says, I want you to agree, I don't think he's talking about 100% uniformity. John Calvin wrote that when it came to standing against atheism, he regarded Catholicism as his ally. And that was amidst of great conflict with the Catholic Church at that time. So we do have our differences with other churches, and we should acknowledge them. But what unites us is so far greater than what divides us. Paul says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where unity comes from. That's where we can agree. So what can we do, practically speaking, to enhance interdenominational unity? I'm going to suggest a couple things. Participate in community Christian events. Let me give an example. Baccalaureate. I assume that all of us believe that having Christ in our young people is a good thing. We hosted Baccalaureate last May right here. The ministers get together with the seniors and we plan the service with them. And it's really a good thing. The kids are excited about it. They're willing to read scripture and, and lead music and they pick the speaker well, this last year, we hold it, held it here, and next year, it might be at the Lutheran Church, it might be at the Methodist Church, and if we want Christian unity, and if we want to encourage our kids, let's participate with these interdenominational events. I'll be honest, I was a little disappointed when we hosted baccalaureate. I thought we'd have a few more of our people show up, very few did. Now, if you say having Christ in our young people is important, and if you say that unity is important, then show it. It would take about 45 minutes of your time to encourage the kids in our faith and to build unity in Christ within our community. Someday, we will be worshiping together in heaven, so we might as well start practicing here on earth. Here's the other thing I'd suggest. We can learn and understand from other faith groups. Our local ministers do get together regularly. Pastor uh, Busher over at Zion is a great guy, and uh, I wish I could be as nice as he is. And so do you, I know. Uh, Pastor Z, is Zoila, over at the Methodist Church, is a woman of God, and that girl can pray, and she has a zeal for God. I wish I had. And we meet, and we meet with other, a couple other Christian minister guys, and, and we learn from each other, and we talk about our differences in a respectful way. We've even talked about, you know, why we believe about baptism the way we do, because we have differences there, and it has just been a blessing. And we learn from each other, and we learn from them, and they learn from us, and both sides are better off. A lot of worship today, you know, like what we do, has been uh, influenced by the charismatics, and we should be grateful. Devotional life has been largely influenced by Catholics, and we've learned a lot about social justice and world hunger from liberal churches. Now, we know Catholics have their crucifix, you know, the cross with Jesus hanging on it. For some reason, I got the impression, maybe I was even taught this, well, Catholics believe Jesus is still on the cross. That is a lie. And then the sign of the cross, you know, that's actually been going on by Christians since very early in the history of the church, not just a Catholic thing. 
and it signifies that I've been crucified with Christ. Is that evil? How about kneeling benches in church? Oh, is that a sin? Might be a good idea. Maybe kneeling to prayer is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that's biblical. There are solid reasons why different groups do what they do, and we could learn from them. So I'm not going to go into that, a lot of that. I want to spend a little more time on the local church because there's always going to be differences in the local church as well. In fact, there should be differences. If, it, if there aren't, it means nobody is thinking. So maintaining in-church unity. Paul says, I appeal to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I go back to that. All unity starts here. We have to be centered in Christ. And whenever you see division or conflict that's harming a church, you know Christ is not central. The ego is. And so we need Christ's will for his church and not our opinions. It means we look at people through Christ's eyes as much as we can, through the eyes of grace, and our attitude is one of reconciliation. And there are times we do have to discipline members for the sake of unity. Paul talks about that later in this letter. And as we go through uh, different seasons and different decisions, there will probably be some disagreements, and that's good and that's okay, but we pray for God to keep us on the same path, worshiping the same Lord, living by the same Spirit. Centered in Christ is where it all begins. And then we should appreciate diversity. We have an assortment of people in this church with an array of personalities and abilities, uh, Sometimes I just laugh when I think of some of you. But anyway, diversity is a God-given blessing, and I laugh in a good way. Uh, it's a good thing, diversity, but it can create tension. And often the conflict is not that someone's right and someone's wrong or bad or good. Just different perspectives. You know, some will say, well, we need to be more missions-minded. That's right. I agree. Some say we need better organization. Yeah, we need that. Some say we need to do better with local benevolence. And yeah, I agree with that. Some say we need to invest in youth. Yeah, I agree with that. Some say we need to care for the elderly. That's true. Some say, well, we need better stewardship. Yeah. And some say we need a better preacher. And that's not true. <laughs> but we have some diversity, many parts, one body, and we should appreciate the different perspectives everyone brings to the body. Some conflict in the church is also generational. Older people versus younger people. You know what? We have some older people here, very nice, God-fearing, obedient, compassionate. We also have some younger people here that are very nice, God-fearing, obedient, compassionate, and we need intergenerational contact to find out. This Thursday, that's kind of what we're trying to hope, this connecting spot, maybe there'll be some of that. And if you're an older person, you think, you know, young people don't like us. That's not true. And if you're a younger person, you can minister to older people and reach out to them. I enjoyed the service project we did down at the school this summer because we had several high school kids helping. Without them, we would not have gotten it done probably. But they were working side by side with an old preacher, and we had some really cool youth, and it was just a joy. Now, I have to be honest. We have some old people that are not so joyful. Frankly, a little cranky, crabby, and hard to get along with. Just a few. Not talking to you, Kevin. Kevin, you're back. <laughs> and you know what? We have some young people that are not always so joyful. And they can get cranky and crabby and hard to be able to get along with. Just a few. And that's a minority. But even they have good, everyone has some good qualities. Appreciate the diversity. There's an old saying I wanted to put up here on the screen. I just love this. There is so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us that it makes no sense for any of us to criticize the rest of us. Amen? There is so much good 
in the worst and so much bad in the best, it just makes no sense for any of us to criticize the rest of us. Appreciate diversity. Here's another. Respect the leadership. The American way is to criticize leadership, even despise it. It's almost ingrained in us. It's kind of fun, actually. It's fun to make fun of Hillary and Trump jokes. And in the schools, uh, a little more serious, no longer do parents support the teachers. They take sides with the kid in undermining the teacher's authority. So it's everywhere. Coaches are idiots because they don't play my kid. You know, In the church, we have got to be countercultural here. When there's constant criticizing of the leadership, there will be division. And I'm not saying it's happening here. I'm just, again, this is just kind of keeping us from preventive medicine, keeping us from doing this. God commands us. Did you know this? God commands us to honor the leadership. First Thessalonians says, Respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. And then he says, live at peace with each other. And it's kind of like, if you can't respect the leadership, you're gonna, not going to have peace in the church. Hold them in the highest regard. You have very good elders. And I know many, most of you know that. I hear that from several of you. You have good ministry leaders. We have good teachers. Respecting them means trusting them and realizing they do not make decisions lightly or selfishly. Yeah, they'll make mistakes. We all do. Hebrews 13 is another one. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. One of the jobs of a leader is to lead well. And Paul says they will give an account. They will answer for their job of leadership. And one of the jobs of a Christian leader is to lead well. And one of the jobs of a Christian follower is to follow well. In fact, if you're not a good follower, you'll never be a good leader. Good followers make the best leaders. And then, follow scriptural guidelines for resolving conflict. This is the brass tacks of it. The Bible says you go one-on-one -on -one first. Jesus said this. You don't talk to your neighbor about this other person or the problem you have. You don't gripe to someone else. You talk to that person with the goal of reconciliation. If that does not work, you bring one or two others in. You are really working to resolve it. That's the goal. And if that doesn't work, you bring, bring the elders and leaders in on that. And if that doesn't work, and if all avenues have been pursued and there's just absolutely no way to reconcile, you may have to go your separate ways. If you go your separate way, don't retaliate. Don't badmouth. The Bible is emphatic about dealing with conflict in the right way. I was reading once about five alternatives in most conflict situations. When someone wrongs you, you can say one of five things. First, I'll retaliate. I'm right, you're wrong, and I'm going to prove it, and I'll get back at you. And I'll get back at you by maybe talking to someone else about you. Second response, I'll withdraw. I quit. I'm going to run. And a lot of people do that. Third, I'll yield. I give in. I'm smiling on the outside, but I'm boiling on the inside. And that's not good. Fourth response, I'll compromise. I'll meet you halfway, 50-50. And sometimes that is a good option and the only option. But the fifth one is the best, and that's resolution. I care enough to resolve this with you. And we are aiming for a win-win solution. I found this modern paraphrase, it's a spoof of Matthew 18 where Jesus talks about 
reconciling. And here's what usually happens. It says, if a brother sins against you, go and tell someone else, but don't approach the brother about it. If he sins against you again, go tell another person. And if he sins yet again, mention it to a third person and then drop a hint to your brother. Sooner or later, he might get the message. If not, leave the church and find somewhere else to go. And that's usually what happens. Paul says, I appeal that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought for the sake of the body of Christ. That word perfectly, I'm not sure that's ever going to happen, but I appeal to you for the sake of evangelism. Adopt a win-win policy, a no-losers policy. We're going to resolve this of both of us win. And remember, your enemy is not the other person. Your enemy is Satan. He is the enemy of your relationships and unity. So how can we find a win-win solution? There's no such thing as win-lose in a marriage, by the way. Or really any good relationship. It's either win-win or lose-lose. Everybody wins or everybody loses. There is no win-lose. The church is a family. And there's healthy families and there's dysfunctional families. And the difference between the two is not that one has problems and the other does not. All families have problems. And all churches have problems. The difference is how they deal with them. And when conflict arises, and it will, how do we address it is so critical. And what's the attitude that we have? Dwight D. Eisenhower said to his generals, it's one team or we lose. Pray for unity. Make Christ central, appreciate diversity, respect the leadership, and follow the biblical way for reconciliation. This has to be a priority. Let's pray. Lord, right now we pray for unity. And we thank you for unity. Thank you for the diversity of people we have, the diversity of gifts, and thank you that we are united in Jesus Christ. I thank you for the diversity of personalities that you've brought together into this one place. And we're thankful for what you're doing in other churches and other denominations and thankful for their commitment and their love for you. And we pray as Jesus prayed that we might be one as he and you are one. And we pray for our congregation that we will have our common foundation solidly planted in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.